passages. Oh, you'll have to excuse me, I left my glasses at home and I'm wearing robes. <laughs> Our first one is from Galatians 5, 22 to 25. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. And our second Bible reading comes from Ephesians 2, verses 11 to 18. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who, were once, who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So far the reading of God's word. Well, good morning. As I mentioned, my name is Adam. I'm part of the team here. And I'd like to begin today by doing something that I never thought I would do. I'd like to share with you an illustration from the movie Miss Congeniality. <laughs> now, if you haven't seen it, Miss Congeniality tells the story about an FBI agent named Grace Hart, played by Sandra Bullock. Now, Grace Hart has to go undercover as a contestant at the Miss United States beauty pageant. And there's a scene in this movie where all the contestants are asked to answer the question, what is the one thing most, or the one most important thing our society needs. And one after the other, the contestants answer, world peace, world peace, definitely world peace. And then eventually it's Grace's turn and she steps up to the microphone and she replies, that would be harsher punishments for parole violators, Stan. Now you've got to remember, she's an undercover FBI agent. And the MC and the crowd are kind of looking around awkwardly before she eventually goes, and world peace and everybody erupts and cheers and everyone's happy. Now the truth is, those beauty pageant contestants were right. If there's one thing that our world needs, that our society needs, that you and I need, it's peace. Jerry Bridges, in his book on the fruit of the spirit, he says untold millions of dollars are spent annually in search of peace. Every year, thousands of people seeking personal or family peace flock to professional counsellors. Diplomats fly around the world pursuing peace between nations. 
Our court systems are jammed with cases arising from a breakdown of peace between individuals and corporations. We lack peace. And at one level, this is surprising because the truth is we live in a day and an age when we've never had it so good. We're better educated than ever. We're living longer than ever. We're less likely to die violently than ever before in human history. We've never had it so good, and yet we lack peace. And this is true at almost every level of our existence. For many of us, we lack inner peace. We find inner rest, inner security difficult to attain and maintain. This has seen the rise of of things like mindfulness, which has become a billion-dollar industry because we're searching, longing for inner peace. If we think globally for a moment, you see, we don't just lack peace internally, we also lack peace externally. And if we think globally, the 21st century has been marked by war. There's been the war against terror, the Afghanistan war, the Iraq war, the Russia-Georgia war, the Gaza war, the war in Somalia, the Tunisian revolution, the Egyptian revolution, the Yemeni revolution, the Syrian civil war, the war in Ukraine. These and more have all happened in the last 20 years or so. If we look a little bit closer to home, it's become obvious that we are living in an increasingly divided society. I don't know if you've noticed this, but politics has become a little bit polarised. It's become a matter of us against them. We, the smart, reasonable people, and those idiots over there who vote for the other party. How could they possibly vote for them? Now, the problem is, both sides of the aisle think this way, which doesn't leave much room for reasonable discourse. To take it a step further, I think we'd also have to admit that we also lack peace in our own relationships. I mean, do we have peace in our families, in our workplaces, with our neighbours, with our friends? This week, I thought about relationships in my own life. You know, it's all good and well to talk about world peace, but have I managed conflict well in my own world? Am I a man of peace? And I would have to say that sometimes the answer has been no. Sadly, not even the church is immune from this reality. Some of you have been in churches where there has been a tragic and devastating lack of peace. There's been fighting, biting and devouring, and it's left you hurt and disillusioned. Or maybe you're not a Christian, and the division in the church, as you look at it, it's left you confused and a little bit repelled. If there's one thing that our world needs, that our society needs, that you and I need, it's peace. So I guess the question is, well, where can we find peace? Can we even find it? Is peace even possible? These are good questions, and they are questions that the Bible speaks into. You know, we are in week three of a sermon series called A Beautiful Life, Cultivating the Fruit of the Spirit. Now, the fruit of the Spirit are those characteristics that God is growing in our lives by the presence and the power of His Spirit. So far, we've looked at love. Last week, we looked at joy. And today, we come to peace. Now, peace is one of the most significant words in the Bible. In fact, in this one small word, we get a snapshot of what God has done for us, what God is doing for us, and what God will one day do for us forever. If you've ever wondered, can I have 
peace? Will our world ever have peace? Then the Bible has good news for you. And I want to just briefly unpack some of that good news this morning. I want to give us three ways that the Bible talks about peace. And I want to do this not just as an intellectual exercise, but I want to do this so that we might become people of peace. So that our lives and our church might become more and more filled with the fruit of peace. So if you're taking notes, the first way that the Bible talks about peace is this. It is the peace of God, or peace with God, rather. Peace with God. Now, the Old Testament word for peace is a well-known word. It is shalom. It literally means wholeness or completeness. It means everything is in order and everything is the way it ought to be. So the Old Testament uses this word to describe a perfectly shaped rock with no cracks in it, or a flock of sheep with none that are missing. When I think about shalom, I think about my lawn, when it's green, there's no weeds, there's no grubs, it's been edged, it's been mowed, it is in a state of shalom. It is as it should be. Now, if we look at the world around us, if we look at our hearts within us, it becomes very obvious very quickly that we are not in a state of shalom, that we are not at peace. And we've already talked a little bit about this, but here's the way Bob Dylan put it. Broken bottles, broken plates, broken switches, broken gates, broken dishes, broken parts, streets are filled with broken hearts, broken words never meant to be spoken, everything is broken. I think we'd have to admit with some of Bob's diagnosis. Now, why is this the case? Well, the Bible would say we don't have peace because we are not at peace with our Creator. Because of our sin, our evil, our rebellion against God, our relationship with God has been fractured, and this has had a flow-on effect into every area of our existence. Think about the most important relationship in your life. If you're married, it's your spouse. It might be your parents. Now, if that relationship becomes fractured, it has a flow-on effect into every area of your life. It affects your other relationships, your emotional health, your living situation, your financial situation, and so forth. Now, imagine this reality on a cosmic scale. The most important relationship in the universe is fractured. And this has a flow-on effect into every area of life. Romans 8 even says that creation groans. Now this means if we are going to find peace, we must first find peace with God. Peace with God is the source and the foundation of all other peace. And this is why the message of the Bible is such good news. Because it tells us that God has made a way for us to enter into a relationship of peace with him. For us to be restored to peace with God. And he's done this through the sin-bearing death of Jesus on the cross. This is what we heard in our reading from Ephesians 2 just a, a moment ago. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. Our sin took us far away from God. It rightly removed us from the presence of God. But God has made a way for us to come near to him, to come home to him. And he's done it through the death of Jesus on the cross. Because the penalty of our sin is death. 
To reject the giver and the source of life is to choose death. And when Jesus died on the cross, he died the death that we deserve to die. He paid the penalty for our sin. He died in our place, paying our debt. And so that if we turn to him in faith and in trust, we receive forgiveness of sin, restored relationship. We find peace with God. Here's the way one old theologian put it, John Owen. He said, this is the great mystery of the gospel, the good news, that because of the blood of Christ, those who sin every day should have peace with God all their days. And this is why Ephesians 2 says that Jesus himself is our peace. When we come to Jesus, we enter into a whole new reality of peace with God, both now and forever. And the really good news is that this new relationship of peace with God, it does not depend upon our peaceful feelings. It will lead to peaceful feelings, as we'll see in just a moment. But it does not depend upon our frame of mind. It depends upon the finished work of Christ on the cross. What did Jesus say when he died? He said, it is finished. It's accomplished. It's done. Or in the words of Romans 5 verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, to be justified means to be given a new and permanent status, to be declared innocent, to be declared righteous, right before God. And because this has happened, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Jesus, we have a new relationship with God. We have a new position with God. We have peace. And this leads us to the second way that the Bible talks about peace. And that is peace within ourselves. This is what we might call inner peace. An experience of rest and security in our hearts and in our minds. And this is what so many people spend so much time and money and heartache trying to find. The Bible would say the only way we can have true inner peace is by finding peace with God. Because when we know we have a right relationship with God, we can have peace of mind. Our guilty consciences are appeased. Our restless souls are soothed. I could point out many places in the Bible, but this is what we read in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22. Let us draw near to God. We used to be far away from God, but now we can draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. We can draw near to God with full assurance because Christ has cleansed us of our sin and our guilt. We can have peace in our hearts. Now, you might be thinking, if that's really true, why don't I have more peace in my hearts and in my mind? Why do I still feel restless? Why do I still wrestle with guilt and shame? And of course, part of the answer is that we continue to wrestle with sin, with the sinful nature. We've been saved from the penalty of our sin, but we've not yet been saved from the power and the presence of sin completely. And so we must continue to fight to overcome sin. We must continue the daily discipline of repentance to to own up, to look up, and to get up. But another reason that we lack peace is because we so easily forget what we have in Christ. We so easily forget what Christ has done for us and purchased for us. It's kind of like the story I read this week of a 26-year-old Canadian man who was jailed for stealing $6,000 from a bank. 
after he was arrested and put in jail, the gun that he used in the robbery, it was put in a museum. Why? Well, apparently it was an antique that was worth $100,000. If he had known what he carried in his hand, he wouldn't have robbed that bank. He had everything that he needed. And this is a picture of what we often do. We lack peace because we forget what we have in Christ. We wallow in the shame of past sin. We act as if our present sins cannot be forgiven. We believe the lie that God could never love us. And this is why we need the truth of God's word, the fellowship of God's people, because we need to be reminded again and again that through Christ we have peace with God. And because we have peace with God, we can have peace within ourselves. Now, you might be thinking, no, no, Adam, the reason I don't have inner peace is because my life has no external peace. I have very little peace in my life. And I get it. Life can be incredibly hard. Accidents happen at the worst possible time. Addictions entangle us. Sickness strikes us or loved ones. Cars break down. Bills pile up. Deadlines loom. Kids disobey, friends disappoint, luggage gets lost, and a thousand other things. Life can be incredibly difficult. And the Bible is honest about this reality. Jesus once said to his disciples, in this world, you will have trouble. But thankfully, that's not all Jesus said. He went on and he said, but take heart, be at peace. I have overcome the world. Now that's a big claim. And, and what does it mean? Well, it means that the sin and the sickness and the brokenness of our world means the pain and the hurt and the confusion that you experience, it has an expiration date. Jesus has come and he has paid for our sin, he has defeated the devil, and he is coming again one day to remove sin and evil and Satan forever and to usher in his kingdom of peace, where the lion will lay down with the lamb, where the swords will be beaten into plowshares, where peace will reign because the prince of peace will rule. And for that reason, we can take heart. We can have hope. We can experience peace even when life is anything but peaceful. Perhaps the best way to explain this is an illustration, and it's one that I've used before, but it's so powerful. You know, there's a well-known hymn that we sing regularly. It's called, When Peace Like a River. And it was written by this man, Horatio Spafford. He was a successful lawyer in Chicago in the 19th century. He was a father of five, very active in his church. But his successful life suddenly turned to disaster. Without warning, his only son died. Then he lost all of his real estate investments through fire. So he decided to take his family to Europe to, to lift their spirits and to support the ministry of George Whitfield. So he sent his wife and his daughters ahead of him on a ship. But halfway across the Atlantic, their ship was struck by another ship and it sank. And his four daughters drowned. While his wife miraculously survived. Now when Horatio went to join his wife in Wales, his ship passed the place where his daughters had drowned. And overwhelmed with grief, he took out a piece of paper and he wrote the words of this hymn that we still sing today. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, 
Whatever my lot, you have taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. Now that is a peace that goes beyond all reasonable explanations. That is a peace that doesn't make sense to the person who doesn't know Christ. Because only God, through the work of his Son, through the presence of his Spirit, can give us that kind of peace in the middle of life's storms. The Bible shows us that we can have peace with God, which leads to peace within ourselves. But there is another important aspect of peace in the Bible. In fact, when the Apostle Paul refers to peace in the list of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, he doesn't primarily have in mind either peace with God or peace within ourselves. They're in view, but they're not the main point. The main point of what it looks like for us to grow in the fruit of peace is found in the third way the Bible talks about peace. And that is peace with other people. This is what we read earlier in Ephesians chapter 2. Jesus has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Now this is referring to Jews and Gentiles, non-Jews. They hated each other. There were literal barriers between them. But Jesus has knocked them down, brought them together. Why? Verse 15. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. See, as these people came to Jesus, they were also brought together. And this is what always happens. When someone comes to Jesus, they become part of the people of God. It does not matter their income, their background, their politics, or anything else. We are all one in Christ Jesus. And this is why when we put our faith in Jesus, we not only receive peace with God, we also receive a new capacity to live at peace with other people. This is why John Calvin says the opposite of the fruit of the Spirit is the quarrelsome spirit. The belligerent, antagonistic attitude. The person who stirs up strife, who loves to pick a fight. In fact, if we look at the other list in Galatians 5, the list of acts that characterize the sinful nature, we see things like hatred, literally an adversarial attitude, discord, being argumentative, picking fights. Dissensions, always drawing lines and divisions, saying who's in, who's out. These things are the opposite of the fruit of the spirit of peace. And yet, sadly, they often characterize some Christians and churches. In fact, I recently saw the movie 1917. I don't know if you've seen it, brilliant movie. It tells the story of Lance Corporal Schofield during World War I. And he is given the mission to cross enemy territory to deliver crucial news about a, an ambush to the commanding officer at the British front lines. Now, while Schofield is making his way to the front, he meets someone who knows the commanding officer to which he has to deliver the letter. And this person warns Schofield and says to him, when you deliver the letter, make sure there are witnesses. Some men just like the fight. In other words, even though Schofield is bringing direct orders to stand down, which will save thousands of British lives, avoid disaster, he's warned that it might be ignored. Because despite the cost, despite the command, some men, some women, just like the fight. Now, sadly, this is true of some corners of the Christian church. Now, to be sure, there are some things we should fight for, 
We are to contend for the faith, Jude says. But we are not to be contentious. We are to hold to sound doctrine. But we're not to be hostile or haughty. The person who is growing in grace and the fruit of peace is the person who's following the clear command of Scripture. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. A mature, spirit-filled Christian is someone who heeds the words of Jesus. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Let me ask you, are you a person of peace? What if we ask those who know you, your family, your friends, your colleagues? Like joy, peace is a serious business. So how can we cultivate peace in our life? How can we pursue peace with other people? Let me offer some practical suggestions as we close. And the first is this. The pursuit of peace should be our priority. It should be our priority. Ephesians 4. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. In other words, make every effort to live at peace with others. Promote peace. Preserve peace. Protect peace. As children of God and as followers of the Prince of Peace, we won't be okay with kind of this settled animosity in our relationships. We won't be okay with a false peace, with burying our tensions. We will pursue peace by pursuing genuine reconciliation. But we will also understand that the pursuit of peace won't always be possible. We heard earlier in Romans 12, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Now, there's an acknowledgement here, isn't there, that that peace won't always be possible because peace depends upon two people coming to the table. But here's the question. Have you done what depends on you? You can't control what the other person will say, do, or think, but you can control what you will do. Have you done what depends on you? And this leads us to the third insight about pursuing peace, and that is the pursuit of peace will make us quick, to apologize. The peacemaking person is the person who is quick to say that word that we don't like to say, sorry. Now this is a hard word for us to say, but this is the word that will begin the path to peace. Proverbs 15, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. I love what Francis Schaeffer says about the power of saying sorry. Listen carefully carefully to this. He says, how can love be made visible? First, it means a very simple thing. It means that when I have failed to love my Christian brother or sister, I go to them and say, I'm sorry. It may sound simplistic to start with saying we are sorry and asking forgiveness, but it's not. This is the way of renewed fellowship, whether it is between a husband and wife, a parent with child, within a Christian community, or between groups. When we have shown a lack of love toward the other, we are called by God to go and say, I'm sorry. I really am sorry. If I'm not willing to say I'm sorry when I've wronged somebody else, especially when I've not loved that person, I have not even started to think about the meaning of a Christian oneness that the world can see. The world has a right to question whether I am a a Christian. The pursuit of peace will make us quick to apologize. And the flip side is that the pursuit of peace will make us willing to forgive. You know, Christians are the most forgiven people in the world. 
which means we should be the most forgiving people in the world. Colossians 3 puts it simply, forgive as the Lord forgave you. To be a peacemaker means to be quick to apologize when you have hurt or wronged someone, and it also means you are willing to forgive when you have hurt or when someone has hurt or wronged you. And it won't always be easy. And some hurts go very, very deep, but the path to peace is the path of forgiveness. The pursuit of peace will also make us honest about ourselves. You know, Jesus once said, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? The peacemaking person faces up to the plank in their own eye. They acknowledge their role in the breakdown of peace. They don't always play the victim. They don't always shift the blame. They confess. They take responsibility for their wrong, their actions, their words. And they do this because finally the pursuit of peace is motivated by the glory of Christ. You know, amazingly, Jesus tied his credibility to the unity of his followers. Jesus tied his witness in the world to the peace of our relationships. That's what we read in John 17. And if there's one thing that can attract others to Christ, it is the beauty and the peace of our relationships. If there's one thing that can repel someone from Christ, it is when we're fighting, bickering, and devouring one another. The glory of Christ in this world is tied to our unity, to our relationships. Our pursuit of peace really matters. So let's ask ourselves, are we pursuing peace? Am I a person of peace? Am I a peacemaker? It's my prayer that we would be a people and a church that is filled with the fruit of peace. And perhaps it might be fitting for us to land with the prayer that is commonly attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. It's on the back of your weekly handout or you can follow along on the screen. These familiar words, and let this be our prayer. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me bring love. Where there is offense, let me bring pardon. Where there is doubt, let me bring faith. Where there is despair, let me bring hope. Where there is darkness, let me bring your light. Where there is sadness, let me bring joy. O divine master, let me not seek as much to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are raised to eternal life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, that is our prayer. Make us instruments of your peace. Make us into people of peace that know we have peace with you through the blood of Jesus, that we can enjoy peace within ourselves because of that and we can pursue peace with those around us. Oh Lord, fill us to overflowing with the fruit of peace so that those around us who are longing for peace might find it where it can only be found in you. So Lord, we commit ourselves to you this morning and we open ourselves up to be used by you for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.